exposed to this environment, lack of water, uh, immense difficulties of simply uh, existing up there for some time now, and their needs are very great indeed. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning. Welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Brian Curtis. The red rainstorm warning has been pulled down here in Hong Kong. Japan's GDP drops sharply. The Hong Kong Monetary Authority issues another flood warning about hot money. Oil drops to a near-term low. German investor confidence dropping sharply. And the NBA says Steve Ballmer's purchase of the L.A. Clippers franchise has closed. We also look forward today to a couple of interesting items. Ten cents earnings and China's industrial output later today. So I know that's a lot of headlines. We'll also be repeating a little bit later that very interesting interview that we did early this morning with Regina Ip about constitutional reform here in Hong Kong. First, a few teases to get us going. Our view is we're seeing a much more improved economy. We think next two to three years, we're all going to be uh, impressed by the growth that we see here. That's John Herman from Mitsubishi UFJ. He's talking about growth in the U.S. economy. If you're in business, that should cheer you a bit, if he's right, of course. So when do workers get their share? Begin to raise the rates sooner, reflecting the pickup in the economy, and then sort of gradually address the shrinking of the balance sheet. So actually, that was him talking about how the Fed will have to move interest rates a little bit sooner than expected. And again, do workers get to share in all of this? And if I want to get very Tom Piketty-like or Karl Marx-like, I could talk about, you know, how the proletariat is being screwed over by the capitalist pigs and mm-hmm. viva la revolution. The problem is that if I look at it more from an S&P 500 perspective, um, and corporate profit margins, EBIT, or operating profit margins, are below what they were in 09 for eight of the ten, oh, eight, oh, seven, sorry me, for eight of the ten sectors in the S&P 500. There's a fair amount of room for profit margin expansion within corporate America. I, I think- he actually goes on to say a little bit later in that chat on Tom Keen in Bloomberg uh, that he sees workers actually starting to get some pretty big pay raises, and we'll play that for you a bit later. Um, guests on the program include Stuart Aldcroft of City Investor Services and Andrew Sullivan of Spirito Santo. They'll be on market coverage. Toby Marion of Golden Gate Wine will be along on, well, wine, and Marcel Tillion of Capital Economics on Japan. Again, we have those numbers. Uh, from Japan, a pretty sharp drop in GDP. Hopefully we'll get that and the Asian market coverage for you in just a couple of minutes. The Monetary Authority says Hong Kong is attracting a huge inflow of funds, and he wants to warn you to be careful. The chief of the HKMA, Norman Chan, said that the money can flow out as fast as it flows in. The HKMA says companies are buying for dividend payments and mergers and acquisitions. The HKMA has injected $9.7 billion since July 1st to maintain the peg to the U.S. dollar. That's $9.7 billion U.S., almost $10 billion. U.S. dollars. On Wall Street, stocks declined. Investors were watching geopolitical developments and Germany, where, as I mentioned, investor confidence was down. Energy shares dropped after Brent crude fell to a 13-month low. The S&P 500 was down 0.2% at 1933. The Dow off nine points at 16,560. Let's go back to Tobias Lefkowitz, the, the chief U.S. strategist at Citigroup. He was asked if he is bullish. 
I, I refer to myself as constructive but not wildly bullish. And the only reason I say that is if I'm looking for, call it another 7% upside in the equity market in the next 12 months, and I get another 1 or 2 percentage points on the dividend yield, you know, 8 9% is a nice return, but it's not like gangbusters. Okay. So not like gangbusters, but he sounds constructively bullish. He doesn't really buy into this concept of the new normal of low growth and high unemployment. I think fundamentals are more important than the, the near-term kind of sentiment swings. But ultimately, I, I get very nervous with new paradigms. If we were talking about the new economy back in 2000, housing, you know, home prices never go down, new normal, now new neutral. I, I think there is some dynamism in the country if it's in technology, if it's energy. Well, it's he was asked uh, if social media was viewed excessively. I, I, I'm going to use the term, um, well, let me define it this way. I think the mobility platforms are part of that great innovative structure. There are always excesses in, in, in growth. And just think about when we were so excited about the Internet in the late 90s. Many of those things played out. Just what we paid for them got kind of silly. Tobias Lefkowitz from Citigroup. Well, the yield on the 10-year Treasury note rose a couple of basis points overnight to 2.45%. John Herman from Mitsubishi UFJ says the Fed will likely move on interest rates before shrinking its balance sheet. They mentioned a few years back they, they would prefer to start shrinking the balance sheet first and then hiking rates. I, right. think they're, I think they're now realizing that they're going to have to do the opposite, which is begin to raise the rates sooner, reflecting the pickup in the economy, and then sort of ad gradually address the shrinking of the balance sheet. And I think they can achieve those goals. I don't think that's going to be a real problem. The Nikkei is down 50 points in early trading at 15,110. Stocks are a little bit higher in Seoul. The cost be up a third of 1%. In Australia, the ASX 200 down five points at 55.17. As we mentioned, oil price is dropping to a 13-month low. Brent crude 103.02 a barrel. Gold is trading at $1,308 an ounce. And in currency trades, the dollar is worth 102.27 yen. The euro is at 1.33. Six U.S. dollars and the pound now 13 Hong Kong dollars and two cents. Our first guest is Stuart Aldcroft, a senior advisor at City Investor Services. Stuart, good morning. So one of the other notes uh, here that um, that I had was that German investor confidence has has fallen to the lowest level since 2012. The crisis in Ukraine and a weaker euro area economy have dampened the mood. The ZEW Center said that its index dropped 8.6 in August from 27.1 in July. It's a rather large drop there. Economists had been forecasting uh, a decrease to 17. It was the eighth consecutive monthly decline. Now, we've been having trouble in the last uh, 24 hours with our link uh, to our studios in Admiralty. I just went once there to Stuart Aldcroft, and we'll try it again. Stuart, good morning. Good morning, Brian. Can you hear me now? Thank goodness gracious. The uh, little red light's gone on. There is a God, or <laughs> many. Uh, we had some trouble yesterday. Three times I went to my first guest uh, with uh, to no avail, with no response, and finally got him on the fourth time. Anyway, so... Well, I'm here now, you. so don't worry. <clears throat> yeah, good to have you in. Um, 
I'm still waiting for the number on Japan because uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, that. The the uh, expectation was that Japan GDP dropped seven percent in this latest quarter. But let's talk a little bit about Germany first because investor confidence there shrank pretty quickly. Yes, and I think the um, I was quite interested by what you read. I hadn't heard that one before, but there has been a few comments recently about Germany, mainly because of the um, very strong link between the German economy and that of Eastern Europe, particularly Russia. And I think that is beginning to cause some sort of slowdown. Uh, Germany has been um, uh, pr- probably the more pacifist of the nations in, in Europe of, for, for normal reasons, natural reasons. Um, and it would probably be the economy that would suffer most in the event of sanctions against Russia, uh, a ban of import and export, uh, and so on and so forth. So I think there's a, there's a general weakness there um, that uh, may prevail for a little while. just depends on how long this uh, standoff over Ukraine will last. People are saying also that there's general weakness in the European economy generally. I don't think that's quite so true. The European economy is still recovering from, obviously, some pretty bad times. Um, yes, there may be a slowdown in, in places, again, uh, somewhat to do with the, the, the Russian sanctions. But I, I think that won't necessarily have a major impact on Europe. Europe still looks um, almost stronger than the U.S. in terms of the growth for the next 12 months. You're generally pretty confident and pretty optimistic. Um, are you still that way? Uh, yes, I am. Sorry to say, you know, I know it's um, easier to be more negative about markets, but um, these days I think the markets are, are, are still on their upward trend, and that's the positive. Uh, I don't think that fa- unless we start to see some fairly big disasters occur, and of course the the Eastern European situation is potentially one. Ebola in Africa is potentially another. Uh, unless we see some of these big things occur uh, and, and play out in full, I, I think there's still uh, a, an on-track feel about most of the Western economies around the world, and that's feeding through to a far more positive stock market position where corporates are, are making a bit more money. Um, that's feeding through to their profits, of course, and that should improve dividends, uh, and investors like that. You've been very confident about U.S. stocks in particular, uh, and you've been right so far. The last year and a half, we've seen some pretty strong gains, although this year has really been almost trading sideways, a few ups and downs. And uh, we're looking at more or less a flat Dow for the year, the S&P up just a little bit. Um, Do you see that uh, continuing through the second half? Uh, yes, I do. The roller coaster uh, effect is still in place, but um, bear in mind that the Dow, the S and P 500, all hit new all-time record highs in the last uh, few months, and so it's inevitable that there will be some sell-off, possibly before a further buying spree. You know, we're talking now in August, which is generally the quietest month of the year. Fund managers go on holiday, stockbrokers go on holiday. Um, Investors go on holiday and, and they come back at the end of the month, towards the end of the month, they reposition themselves, they, they look at what's happened while they've been away and there's still cash flowing into, into markets. I think the reason though, and, and, and this comes back to, to, to the sort of more general view, if you're getting virtually 0% on any savings that you leave at the bank, then you do look elsewhere to find things to do with it. And the markets give you that opportunity. 
They don't promise to give you double-digit returns, but dividends will help to give you more than you would get if you just left it on deposit. The HKMA is warning about uh, possibly higher interest rates because they see that the Fed is normalizing and they expect by the middle of next year the consensus call that rates will go up. Um, they keep warning. Is, is, that, is that right? Is that prudent? I mean, higher interest rates would be good for many people, people who are getting, as you just mentioned, 0% on their savings. Yeah, and there are two, there are two tiers of warning here. Um, and the, the warnings, I think, if I remember correctly, have been pretty strong for the last two years now, although nothing has happened. So you could call this the, the, the little boy crying wolf. I don't think that's the case. I do believe that it's correct that there is a, a vast inflow of money. Whether it will go out will depend on whether or not Hong Kong and what's in Hong Kong can deliver the returns that the, those that are putting money in want. Yeah, wouldn't you really rather hear them say, we're going to do everything possible to make sure that that money stays because we are a safe haven. Hong I, Kong is a great place to keep absolutely. your cash. I'd love, I'd love to hear that. Why yeah. don't they? I, you well, know, that's your question he, to ask he, them. He, here's another thing, Stuart, which I, I find quite interesting. Uh, you only need to look at airlines to um, kind of see the import of this. We've seen Brent crude drop from $116 to $103. Now, everybody's worried about, oh, my God, when might we see the first 25 basis point jump in interest rates? Meantime, energy prices have gone a lot lower and, you know, maybe maybe that's something we should focus on. Uh, yes, uh, we would love to believe, uh, and I'm sure you as a, a, a traveler as well as most of the people in Hong Kong would love to believe that... It gets these, passed on to us and it's not? Passed oh, on to us. The, the, the refineries are gouging us again? Is that yes. your story? Yeah, well, when are we going to see lower airfares? I, I don't think it ever goes down, does it? <laughs> yeah, you just see higher profits. Uh, yes. You know, if you look at some of the airlines like Delta and, um, well, Cathay Pacific has struggled a bit, but we're going to get Cathay Pacific earnings today. And with jet fuel being at a multi, uh, multi-year multi low, you would think that that has to feed through. I, I guess what you're saying is, um, you know, please lower our fares then. Well, yes. And, and here's the dilemma. Uh, should a company like Cathay or any of the other uh, airlines, should they give higher profits to their shareholders, or should they lower the fares to their passengers, their customers, and maybe encouraging more people to fly? There is a dilemma there, and, and that's uh, a question of how well the businesses are managed. Clearly, we, we, we uh, trust the management of these airlines to achieve what is the best and the fairest result. Now, we're going to get China's July industrial production out today. Um, the analyst consensus estimate is that it may have expanded 9.2% year on year. Are you reasonably optimistic about China or are you one of the China bears? Um, no, I'm not a China bear. Uh, in fact, quite the opposite. I'm, I'm now really at the most positive I've been about China and the prospects for China in, in the last couple of years. So come on, um, you can't be always positive. I mean, well, that no, would just I'd, mean that you're an, you're, you're an optimist. And well, you know, you're, two, two you're years ago, looking, um, Brian. you know, uh, um, very, <laughs> you know, evenly at data. Yes, but, you know, two years ago, you asked me, um, did I think we were going to have a hard landing in China? I said, no, I didn't think it would be a soft landing. I just didn't think there was going to be any landing. I think it was just going to carry on. Now, I do think the China economy is is very carefully staged, managed by the government. They are desperate to keep this 7% plus GDP growth. 
I do think they are still the world's manufacturing base. And, and until that changes, uh, which isn't looking likely anytime soon, uh, they, they will continue to benefit when the rest of the world has a recovery in their economies. Okay, here's some new news. Japan's economy contracted by an annualized 6.8% in the April to July quarter. That sounds like a lot, but the estimate was for a contraction of 7.1% among economists surveyed by uh, the Wall Street Journal. So what had happened here, uh, Stuart, was that you know a lot of people front-loaded their buying before the consumption tax came in. Then after the consumption tax came in. There was the natural drag of that anyway. Plus, there was the drag that so much had been front-loaded and purchased in the first quarter before the tax came in. So, I'm just wondering whether or not you think that Japan is a worry or not not so much. No, Japan um, is in the worry section. Um, it hasn't performed particularly well this year so far. It's probably down most among the the major markets. Um, but it was a pretty good performer last year, and, and with a lot of currency volatil- volatility last year. This year we're starting to see the effects of the Abenomics um, changes. They haven't all come through yet, uh, but the currency is a lot more stable than it was, and, and I think that we will probably need to sort of keep a very close eye on what's going on there. Yes, the, the, the market isn't doing terribly well, uh, but there is the potential at least, uh, and I, that I only put it as potential, that there could be a, a recovery probably early in the new year, next year. Mm. Okay, so just a final question before we move on to our discussion about wine. Uh, what is what are you watching the most? I, I mentioned Cathay earnings today in China's industrial production out. Also, ten cents earnings are out today, which should be very interesting. And there's quite a few other you know little things. Norman Chan at the HKMA also said that China-related lending might slow in the second half. So he was trying to encourage people to be really cautious with these hot money flows. Um, what are you looking at the most closely? Well, I, I think the biggest thing worldwide. First of all, we have to look at what's going to impact big time economies. That's going to be the the sort of uh, problems that we're seeing in Ukraine and the Middle East, um, and they could have some impact. Whether these economies will uh, go down negatively, um, that's anybody's guess right now. They're not directly um, impacting stock exchanges at this point. But any one of them, if they can blow up big time, then, then we have a problem. Secondly, though, when will interest rates go on the upside? That's, a, that's good for investors in deposits. You've mentioned that already. It's not so good, particularly for people buying uh, U.S. treasuries or other government bonds. Well, everybody's mortgage is going to go up a lot. You know, that's yes, the, but you know, I think the, the, the fear of the rising interest rates... Not in the U.S. Where fixed rates, but we've got uh, floating rates here. Yeah, but the, the, the fear of, in, of interest rate rises is, is tempered by the fact that the amount of the rise may actually be very small. Yeah, and also, you know, rates are going up because somebody, um, hopefully who knows better than us, Janet Yellen and uh, her yeah. her cohort, uh, think that the economy is getting, getting pretty well. You know, it's yes, and, and I think it's a time when they could uh, uh, take a, a, a more aggressive stance and pe- perhaps raise interest rates by half of 1% or maybe more. But okay. I, I think a half of 1%, I mean, it's insignificant in reality. Okay, so it's not, not going to stop it, you though. from buying a bottle of wine. By the way, do no. you drink any wine? I don't. I haven't drunk for I haven't drunk any alcohol for more than ten years now. Oh, I was gonna sorry I did and say stay on for our discussion with Toby Marion. You can stay on anyways. So I will stay on anyway. Coming up next, Toby Marion from Golden Gate Wine.
couple seconds there. Allow me to finish my cup of coffee and the pause that refreshes. And good morning to Toby. Toby, hi. Good morning, Brian. Toby Marion, CEO and owner of Golden Gate Wine. You know, I thought about you, and uh, because of this big story about treasury wine being um, up for grabs, a big battle for Australia's treasury wine estates, um, which is the only big listed producer, uh, a battle for this is calling into question the case for standalone wine companies. And I know you deal more with uh, smaller family runs, so I don't want to really talk to you about treasury wine, but I thought it a good time to talk a little bit about wine generally and some of the latest trends. How has business been for you as an importer? Uh, We've been seeing a gradual recovery over the last year, and the market looks pretty good right now. Uh, Mid-2012 to mid-2013 was quite negative in Hong Kong and China. So we'll get to that in a minute, but do you see things picking up here because the economy is doing well or because, you know, the 1% uh, is doing well and there's a lot of the 1% in Hong Kong? Well, we're seeing a reversal of some of the trends a couple of years ago where Bordeaux prices had gone way too high and they collapsed and that affected the top end. And we saw a slowdown in China exports and that was really hurting the merchandisers and buyers who come to town. And we saw a lot of turmoil in the restaurant and hotel scene. And it's gradually coming back now. I think people are buying less expensive wine, but they're buying more. And we're seeing um, modest uh, single-digit growths here in Hong Kong. I had a guest on the program a couple of weeks back uh, say that Burgundy was a very exciting um, part of the wine story for this year, that Pinot Noirs were doing pretty well. And I uh, just wonder if you're seeing that as well. Is that because of the, of the uh, chaos that we saw with Bordeaux? Uh, yes to both your questions. Uh, Bordeaux, basically the Cabernet-style blends, are the most popular wines. 75% of the people would prefer that, and only a minority really get to know Pinot Noir or Burgundy very well. So that retards the growth of Burgundy and Pinot Noir. But yes, popularity moved to Burgundy, and it's a smaller region with the properties being much smaller as well. So the prices ran up in the high end and in the mid-zone. So uh, yes, Burgundy's doing well. Pinot Noir in the New World, particularly in California and Oregon, are slightly different, but they have the same lightness and they're very de- they're delicious. They're more fruit-flavored than, than some of the Burgundy. So you have a good choice between two very good styles of wine. You mentioned that we saw a drop of around 3 or 4% last year in, in China. Was that partially because of the crackdown on, um, on luxury, uh, the corruption crackdown, and uh, forcing government officials to entertain less? Yeah, most of us in the industry feel that is the case. Imports in China accounted for about 2% of total wine consumption 10 years ago. And last year, they were 188 almost 19%. Um, meanwhile, China consumes 155 million cases of wine, which is about half the size of the USA market, but it's one of the top five wine consumers in the world. Uh, but yes, definitely the new government came along and put the uh, guidelines out that said less gifting or no gifting and less banqueting or not ostentatious banqueting. And that's definitely hurt certainly the high-end French wines and, and the market in general in terms of high-priced wines. Let's talk a, a little bit uh, more practical uh, for people trying to decide whether or not to pay a reasonably high price for a bottle of wine in a restaurant versus the corkage fee. What do you recommend? 
Well, basically, uh, the subtext of all of this is everybody has to pay rent in Hong Kong. So Hong Kong's got brilliant restaurateurs, uh, great chefs, great sommeliers, but a lot of times it's the financial controller who decides what the pricing is. In fact, generally that's true. So the best answer to that question is find out what it is that your restaurateur wants. And if he's willing to let you bring a bottle and buy a bottle, that's the best answer. It's almost always going to be better value to bring a bottle and pay the corkage. But you don't want to do that to the disadvantage of the people that have to run the fine restaurants that we enjoy here in Hong Kong. And among all these different types of wines that we've talked about, we haven't talked too much about the whites, but uh, you can put in, um, you know, the Chardonnays and Chablis and those. Uh, Where's the best value at the moment? Well, the best value tends to be mid-priced wines from the New World or from the Old World with France and Italy and Spain right up there. Um, in California, we've got Napa Valley, which is super famous. And in Oregon, we've got Willamette Valley, which is very famous. But there's lots of other locations as well. And you don't need to pay uh, thousands of dollars to get a good bottle of wine. Retail, you can buy wonderful wine in the 100 to $300 range. Yeah, and uh, you referenced also at the beginning uh, something uh, about strange pricing uh, with Bordeaux. I know there's some technicalities in that, but if you could sort of sum it up in a minute or so and explain it to people, what really happened? Uh, basically, what happened is that the high-end Bordeaux became super popular with tr- a lot of dollars chasing after them. So the wine- wineries sell at a standard price and they have allocations. We're talking about first and second growths now. They have allocations that have been established over many decades. And in fact, the system is centuries old. So they sell on to the negociants. And the negociants suddenly were able to sell – this is going back four or five years – to sell at dramatically higher prices than that w- what they were buying for. So they made huge huge profits. And and in a couple of years' time, of course, this upset the wineries a great deal. And so they raised their prices very substantially. And overnight, the prices collapsed. So you went from a situation where it was a seller's market in the extreme to where it was a buyer's market in the extreme. And today you see France, Britain, USA, China sitting on a lot of basically overpriced high-end Bordeaux that it's going to take years before the value that they paid is equal to the value in the marketplace. So wouldn't that suggest that values... I asked you about values before. Wouldn't there be a pretty good value proposition with the Bordeaux now? Well, it is, but not at the top end. Even the negotiants will tell you, don't buy the top end. It's too expensive. (laughs) They say nobody drinks that wine anymore. It's just a a, a, a wealth marker that people pass from person to person. Stuart? Uh, yes. Uh, is, there, is it true, though, that there's a bit of a wine lake sitting around in Europe at the moment because there is so much of this wine in the cellars and not being sold at the, at the supermarkets or, or, or at the retail end? I think that is true. I think at the high end, there's this wine lake of overpriced wine that nobody can get rid of. And at the low end, there's uh, continued expansion of wine production around the world. In some countries, and we have to say that people like the French and the Italians and the Spanish are the best, they figure out ways through their government support and what have you. And I don't mean that as a negative comment. They figure out ways to get that wine to market. So you can buy wine in Hong Kong, you know, starting at $20, $30 a bottle, going all the way up to 20000 or $30,000 a bottle. Yeah. Would you buy 20000 bottles, uh, 20000 a bottle? Well, we sell Screaming Eagle and we sell maybe half a dozen bottles a year and mm. the prices range from eighteen dollars to $30,000 a bottle. So mm. it's really just a question of the pocketbook of the person who's doing the buying. Yeah. The wine Wine is wonderful, but it's beyond my pocketbook. Okay. Well, Toby, we're out of time. Have to go there. Thank you very much for on short notice. Thank you, Brian. Toby Marion, CEO of Golden Gate Wine.
Yeah, regular listeners of this program knew that you were going to get that, but only for a couple seconds. Markets are mixed at the moment. Uh, the Nikkei is up 20 points, so a reversal after the GDP number was a little better than expected. And Seoul is higher as well. Weather today, cloudy with showers, squally thunderstorms. 29 as the maximum. Still a lot of thunderstorms around. Just after 8.30, the news with Samantha Butler. Pan-Democrats have angrily dismissed a suggestion that chief executive candidates should secure support from more than half of those in the nominating committee, saying it denies voters a genuine choice. Yesterday, a source who didn't want to be named said Beijing was considering the higher threshold and that universal suffrage could be pushed back to 2027. Executive Council member Regina Ip, who also chairs the New People's Party, told RTHK this morning she thought the threshold was reasonable. Previously, we are talking about election by only 1,200 people. Now we are talking about moving forward to election by potentially 5 million people. It's a totally different ballgame, and it could mean really substantive change to the Hong Kong's fundamental political system. The United Nations Refugee Agency says up to 30,000 people remain stranded in searing temperatures on a mountain in northern Iraq under threat from Islamist militants. The UN says the families on Mount Sinjar, many from the Yazidi religious minority, are without food, water or shelter. The UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon appealed for more international help. The plight of Yazidis and others on Mount Sinjar is especially harrowing. UN humanitarian personnel are in the area doing all we can. Airdrops of food and water are reaching some of the trapped people. But the situation on the mountain is dire. I urge the international community to do even more to provide the protection they need. Police investigating the death in California of the Hollywood star Robin Williams say the actor hanged himself at his home in San Francisco. Keith Boyd of Marin County Sheriff's Department said the actor was found in his bedroom by his assistant. The personal assistant was able to gain access to Mr. Williams' bedroom and entered the bedroom to find Mr. Williams clothed in a seated position, unresponsive, with a belt secured around his neck, with the other end of the belt wedged between the, closet, the closed closet door and the door frame. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning. This is Money for Nothing. I'm Brian Curtis. A well-placed source says that China is expected to lay out what he called an extremely conservative framework for the 2017 chief executive election. He also warned that this could stall the reform process and delay the introduction of universal suffrage for a decade. Cecil Wong has the details. The Standing Committee of the National People's Congress is expected to decide how Hong Kong can choose its next chief executive at the end of the month, and the source said he expects the system it endorses to prevent anyone who opposes Beijing from running. And he would not be surprised if the committee rules that all candidates need to be endorsed by over half the members of the future nominating committee before a new leader is chosen through universal suffrage. Democratic Party leader Emily Lau said this would be a huge step backwards. It's utterly ridiculous. If you look at the last two occasions, the threshold was 12.5%.
how can we go backwards? Occupy Central organizer Chan Kin Man said if voters aren't given a genuine choice, the planned takeover of the Central Business District will go ahead. If Beijing does not honor its promise, I guess it will bring the political crisis to Hong Kong. The source admitted that such an electoral system would probably not be endorsed by any Pen Democrats in Lechco and may even alienate some pro-establishment councillors. This would mean no changes will be made to the 2017 poll, and universal suffrage, he warned, could be pushed back to 2027. He said the Pen Democrats have to face up to this reality and consider whether they can accept an imperfect package to grant the public the right to choose their next leader. Local NPC delegate David Wong says he thinks the people want to achieve universal suffrage even with limits. The Hong Kong people see the real significance of universal suffrage as expanding the electoral base from 1,200 people to potentially over 5 million people. The source also said he believes Beijing is becoming increasingly concerned that more and more people here favor independence for Hong Kong and the territory could be used as a base to overthrow the Communist Party. Executive Councillor Regina Yip said that she wouldn't be surprised if Beijing does indeed take this hardline position. She also told RTHK's Hugh Chiverton that she and her party would accept whatever it puts forward to ensure one person, one vote in 2017. There have been many um, indications of the hardline in the past few months, so it's not surprising. What about, say, the 50% threshold? Would that be uh, uh, acceptable to you? Uh, I think some would be dis- disappointed, but um, it would be um, disappointing to the pan-democrats because it means that they would have um, much lower chance of getting uh, nominated. But um, if um, for a high office like the chief executive, um, a high threshold is understandable. So it would, it would be acceptable to you and your party? Um, if there is no other option, uh, and this, it's the only way forward to way, only way to move forward to um, uh, electing the chief executive by universal suffrage in 2017, I think we would accept it. Would you accept anything under those circumstances? If it was seventy percent, if it was ninety percent, would you accept that? Uh, far too high. Uh, well, Occupy Central looks likely to happen if, if, the, uh, if the paper is, is, is described. Uh, what do you think about that? And what do you think about it taking place perhaps earlier than expected? I think that would be really disappointing because I think that would be foolish because there's no way Beijing would be coerced into accepting a lower threshold by people stirring up... Uh, confrontation in Hong Kong. What would make the difference? Um, I think through talking with um, um, the the central authorities, clearly the central authorities are very concerned about security, threats to national security and uh, sovereignty. And the requirement is the chief executive candidate must be someone who truly... Um, who is truly trustworthy. So I think uh, people who want to get nominated have to convince the central authorities that um, uh, they will not do anything to really undermine uh, the security of the entire nation.
It seems, though, that we're moving away from uh, democrat from democracy and a representative government because the threshold is increasing, because it was formerly 12.5%, and, and now we're talking about 50% and more. Uh, that's not a fair comparison, because uh, previously you were, we are talking about election by only 1,200 people. Now we are talking about moving forward to election by potentially 5 million people. It's a totally different ballgame. And it could mean um, really substantive change uh, to the Hong Kong's fundamental political system. You, you say this is driven by a fear that uh, Hong Kong could be used as a base for subversion, a base perhaps to overthrow the, the, the Communist Party. Is that a reasonable fear? Do you think that that is a likely, even possible prospect? I think that's uh, reasonable because if you... I didn't take part in the first July march, but I had friends who, who did and came back and showed me all the flyers, all the, you know, handouts, you know, the Hong Kong autonomy movement, the glossy publications. It's very well organized, very well financed, unlike the um, first July march in 2003, um, which was much more spontaneous, you know, so these concerns are legitimate. Do you think that uh, your party would retain support of the public uh, if you if you endorse the, the the idea of a fifty percent threshold? I think there is a, a, a lot of um, um, support uh, on the part of the public for universal suffrage based election in two thousand seventeen, even though the threshold is high. After all, we are talking about a, a very important office. Um, and it's, a, it's a, a fundamental change of our political system. And well, I received an email from a, a doctor yesterday saying that uh, he supports democracy, but in a gradual and a truly gradual and orderly manner that would not uh, undermine the, the stability of Hong Kong. So I think there are no lack of people uh, who... who would agree with that. What if there was some kind of statement, official announcement that uh, this is not the last word, that there could still be progress and that perhaps a 50% threshold could be lowered uh, in the course of time? That's, of course, necessary, possible, because um, no system is uh, immutable, you know. Um, democracy is a work in progress. Uh, in many in many countries and territories, the systems e evolves over time. So when we have made this a giant step forward, it's naturally possible for the system to be further liberalized in the course of time. But we've had quite a long time already. We've had 20 years to, to, to reach this stage. Uh, that's a, a very short period of time, you know, to be to be to be honest, you know, considering. That, you know, when did the West give women the right to vote? The U.S. and U.K. and many other countries, they did it only after a bloody and tough suffragette movement in the U.K. and in two stages to women because they fear women would outnumber men. Check the history, please. Uh, isn't that an argument for Occupy Central, that a change will only be achieved after, as you say, bloody struggle? Um... But it depends on what they are looking for. You know, in, in, the, in the UK suffragette movement, after all, the women were up against inequality of rights between men and women. In this case, we are talking about 
a a um, challenging threshold, which all candidates have to face up to. I tried to run in 2012, and I didn't get nominated because I didn't meet the threshold. That didn't give me a right to, I don't think that would entitle me to cause havoc in uh, our core business district. Aren't the people of Hong Kong just looking simply to be able to choose their own leaders to a representative government, a right which is enjoyed by most people in the world? to choose, you know. I don't think you can treat democratic, the participation by pan-democrats as the gold standard in democracy. You know, even candidates from the uh, uh, pro-establishment camp, um, they very different, there's a high range of difference between them, uh, that the public still have a genuine choice between different candidates between the pro-establishment camp. Regina Ip, the new People's Party chairman, who also sits on the Executive Council, speaking on Hong Kong Today earlier this morning and chatting there with RTHK's Hugh Chiverton. The government is to hold a cross-departmental meeting today to discuss how to handle possible Ebola patients in Hong Kong. This comes after a panel of WHO experts unanimously approved the use of experimental drugs to tackle the virus. The hospital authority has contacted a U.S. manufacturer of the experimental drug ZMAP, but its chief infection control officer, Dominic Chung, said no decision had been taken yet on whether to acquire the drug or use it at this point. So far, we have touched base with the supplier of that Semex, the Semex Biopharmaceutical. We are in the process of sorting out the details, say, for example, how many doses, uh, uh, what are the situations that uh, we need those uh, medications, etc. We will sort out all these before we we can decide or we can uh, have a protocol on when and how uh, and what situations to use the, the drug. Dominic Chung from the Hospital Authority. The time is 16 minutes before 9 o'clock. This is Money for Nothing. We'll look at business and finance next. We should all participate in recycling, and we should do so in a clean way. When recycling a glass bottle, we must first remove the lid and empty the bottle and then rinse the bottle with used water before taking it to a recycling bin. Recycle clean. Rinse glass bottles before recycle. For details, please visit www.epd.gov.hk. Good morning to you, and thanks for joining us here on Radio 3. This is Money for Nothing. I'm Brian Curtis, joined now by Andrew Sullivan, head of sales trading at Espirito Santo. Andrew, good morning. Good morning. So much to look out for today. I've been previewing uh, some of this uh, earlier on the program. Cathay Pacific earnings, uh, also Tencent, SGM as well. And we've got the China July industrial production numbers. And we also had the GDP in Japan. So, so much to talk about. What's uh, key on your list? Well, I think probably the China data out later in the day is going to give us a good insight into what's happening uh, there on the mainland. And plus the fact we're still waiting for the monetary data out of China, which is due sometime this week again to get further insights as to what is happening. Yeah, if we see that um, inflation is down and continues to stay down while the economy is getting better, um, that sort of bodes well for stocks, doesn't it? 
It does bode well, but I think a lot of people are, are very concerned after the poor German uh, confidence uh, DW survey yesterday uh, and other data out of Germany that, that Europe may be facing a slowdown, and obviously that's a key market for China exports, uh, and so something that needs to be watched carefully. Yes. What about Tencent and some of these other earnings that we'll be looking at today, Cathay Pacific? I know you've been a bear on Cathay Pacific, but with oil prices as low as they are now, are you still bearish? Well, I think the trouble is that the oil price has only just come lower. So you know, certainly we're looking at the first half results here when the oil price was remaining high. And I think the, the, the key thing there for Cathay is going to be, one, whether there's been any improvement in their cargo loads uh, and the profitability of their cargo operation, which has been a drag before, uh, and really whether things like the Malaysian airline incidents and the, the shooting down of a plane over Europe uh, has impacted their, uh, their traffic flows. Yeah, it's been sort of a tough period for airlines, I guess, although jet fuel prices have, as you mentioned, dropped to a more than one-year low. Um, what else is on the radar screen? I, I note uh, that Japan's economy contracted a little bit less than what was expected, 6.8% in the April to July period. Of course, it was all um, affected by the consumption tax that came in and front-loading for the quarter before that. Um, is Japan a concern to you, or is it um, kind of steadily improving? I think it is still a concern. I mean, I think that the, 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 the key things here as well, you, you have to look at the fact that they revised down the, uh, the Q1 GDP number there, uh, and you know, searching a little bit below the surface, certainly consumer spending was a lot weaker than people were expecting. So although the, you know, the, the consumption tax was sort of well-heralded, uh, I think the impact of that is probably far greater than people had previously thought. And, and we're losing, as far I think, in Japan, the positive effect of the, the weakening yen, uh, which had been a big driver last year. Uh, now, you know, a year ago, the yen, we were talking about it you know, around the 90 level. This year, we've been talking about the 100 level. So its move hasn't been that great. Uh, and Japanese companies are now struggling, I think, to, uh, to really compete in a global market where we're seeing you know, poor signs of recovery, certainly in Europe, and, and fickle signs of recovery in the U.S. What about all these warnings from the HKMA? Norman Chan saying, look out, this hot money that, that flows into uh, Hong Kong, no matter where it's coming from, whether it's Russia, whether it's Indonesia, whether it's investors looking to take advantage of a better Chinese economy or what, he has been warning people. Uh, do you share those concerns? Well, I think to, a, to an extent. I mean, we have seen some increased volumes in Hong Kong, but I mean, not significantly huge volumes going through the market. And I don't think it's really you know, driven the market higher. I mean, the market's been trading around these levels for the last few months. Um, so I think that, that you know, one has to be wary that that money can come in and go out. But I think that's always the case in Hong Kong because we have a fixed link with the U.S. dollar. So it, it's something that people are generally aware of, I think. Okay, Andrew, thanks very much for joining us on short notice. Appreciate it. Your pleasure. Andrew Sullivan, uh, head of sales trading at Espirito Santo. We say good morning now to Marcel Tillion, Japan economist at Capital Economics. Marcel, good morning. Those GDP numbers, uh, 6.8% for the April to July quarter, uh, was that, in your view, better than expected, uh, or was it on par? Um, well, we had actually penciled in a, a 1.3 contraction, so from our perspective, it was a bit worse, but judged by the market reaction, it was pretty much in line with expectations. Uh, we, we didn't see any move in the, in the yen or in the Nikkei, so it, it does seem to be broadly in line with expectations. So one three annualized would be about what? 
uh, once we analyze, will be about uh, 6%. Okay, so uh, so this is a little worse than expected. Uh, but there are some good things happening. Uh, as you weigh up the good things uh, and some of these disappointing numbers, like uh, growth in, the, in that quarter, um, where do you come out? Um, well, I think this quarter, it's, it's very hard to find the bright spot. I mean, the, the only apparent bright spot was obviously that net exports added to growth for the first time since the launch of Abenomics. But this is uh, mostly because of the collapse in domestic demand. So the exports were actually still falling. So I think we'll, we'll really have to, to wait for the data for the second half of the year before we can uh, really uh, see whether the recovery will resume. I mean, we, we still think it will. And actually, I think the the fact that the yen hasn't weakened much further further over the last uh, couple uh, the last couple of months is actually positive for for Japanese consumers because it means that the prices are probably not rising as fast anymore as they have over the last couple of months. So the the big drag that we had on consumer spending in the second quarter from from the, the high uh, high inflation should gradually fade over the coming uh, months. And also, the, the labor market is still healthy. So the, the backdrop for consumer spending in the second half of the year is, I think, better than many people believe. And is there much of a chance for the restructuring that is part of the third arrow of Shinzo Abe, the prime minister's plan? Is there much of an expectation that we'll see more of that in the next uh, year? Um, well, we, we just had the, the latest announcements in June, which were... Uh, I would say rather mixed. We, we had a lot of uh, announcements, but uh, the devil is in the details, and all these things will now have to be pushed through legislation. And, and so far, uh, it doesn't seem that we really get a big, big push on, on any major thing. I mean, the, the, prob- the, the biggest thing that was announced is probably the corporate tax cut, where details have, have been announced now. But uh, there are other factors in Japan's tax system that also needs to, needs to be reformed, so we really have to see what exactly is put into legislation. Yeah, you mentioned or hinted at least uh, that uh, it's a little bit different this time from when the consumption tax was uh, raised back in 1997, that that the um, conventional wisdom then was that that shut everything down. It derailed the recovery. Uh, why is it different this time, consumer confidence? Um, well, I think the major, the major factor in 1997 or in 1998 was the, the Asian financial crisis which obviously uh, knocked out uh, several of Japan's major trading partners. And uh, currently, we obviously have some, uh, some weakness in Europe. But if you look at the Export Climate Index, which is uh, the, the weighted PMIs of Japan's major trading partners, it actually rose to the highest level uh, since 2011 in July. So on the external front, uh, things are, are quite supportive at the moment. So I think... Um, from the pure domestic side, uh, things are looking okay, and the external side seems to be supportive. So I don't think we'll see a recession as we saw in, in 1997. And is there a little bit of a pickup in consumer confidence? Yeah, I mean, we've seen, we've seen that, but we've also seen that in, in 1997. I think that's, that's what many people uh, generally uh, miss out. Actually, the economy did start to rebound in the third quarter after the consumption tax hike in 1997. And it only then was uh, pushed back into recession at the end of the year when then the Asian financial crisis really hit uh, the external demand. Yeah. You know, with the yen generally weaker than what it was, uh, say, a year, year and a half ago, the first part of the story was that 
uh, Japanese companies didn't really lower their prices to try to get market share. They just took the profits. Uh, then the next step might be, if they took the profits, will they use that to pay higher wages to their workers? And it seems that we haven't seen that much of that either. Will we? I mean, the, the, the nominal wages are at least no longer falling, which by Japanese standards is, is already uh, quite something. And we've also seen a, a bit of bonus uh, payments. I mean, typically Japanese firms usually use uh, bonus payments rather than, uh, than base pay to, to, to increase uh, wages. And we, we've seen that to some extent. I mean, the summer bonus season was a bit disappointing, but I still think that the tight labor market will result in at least some wage growth. Probably not very strong, but certainly prospects have improved for consumers from the wage side. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks very much, Marcel. Always a pleasure. Thank you for joining us here on Money for Nothing. Marcel Tillion, Japan economist at Capital Economics. Here's how the numbers look at the moment. The yen is trading against the dollar at 102.27, so very little change. The euro is right now 1.336 U.S. dollars. The Nikkei, the main stock average that we follow in Japan, is up 13 points at 15,174. Australia is slightly lower, about a quarter of a percent. And Seoul, the equity market there, is up by about a fifth of 1%. Oil is now under $103 a barrel. 102.90. The gap between Brent and uh, West Texas Intermediate in the U.S. is getting a little closer. WTI at about 97 or so. And gold is now $1,308.08. So $1,308.80 rather for an ounce of gold. Well, tributes continue to pour in for Robin Williams. Police have been saying more about the death of the comic and the Hollywood star. Officers say the actor hanged himself with a belt at his home in San Francisco. Robin Williams has been widely hailed as one of the great masters of improvisation. Here's the BBC's Alastair Leithhead in Los Angeles. Good morning, Vietnam! Robin Williams brought his own incredible energy and comic twinkle to every role he played. You for Jania, don't fire, dear. He was funny, he was versatile as a woman. And there's a president. Theodore Roosevelt, president of the United States of America. I have no idea what that means. Flowers were laid outside his home near San Francisco, where he was found dead by his assistant. Presenting his preliminary findings, the coroner said he'd been suffering severe depression. Mr. Williams' life ended from asphyxia due to hanging. Toxicology testing will be conducted to determine if Mr. Williams had any chemical substances in his system at the time of his death. Robin Williams publicly joked about his personal battle with addiction to alcohol and his experience with drugs. Three days later, I was kind of like, oh, boy, still going. why am I in Bombay? No, I was still going. And then the weird thing is you're up and you're up and you're up, but when you crash, even the devil's going... Dude, this is not going to go well. <laughs> In tribute, his daughter Zelda quoted the little prince. You, only you, will have stars that can laugh, she said. I love you, I miss you, I'll try to keep looking up. At a Hollywood premiere, some of the biggest names of his generation echoed that sentiment. He was also a friend and I admired him and he's, you know, he's a, he's a, he's a legend. He's unbelievable. He's gone too soon. He should have stuck around, but, you know, that's the way it is. You don't get a second shot. And God help him. Flowers are still being laid on Hollywood's Walk of Fame for a rare man whose character and his characters touched people of all ages around the world. 
That's the BBC's Alistair Leithhead reporting. To local news now, the chairman of the government-appointed Council on Sustainable Development, Bernard Chan, says that a cross-bureau effort is needed to successfully implement a waste charging scheme. The council has been working on a pay-as-you-throw charging scheme, which would be introduced in 2016 at the earliest. Reports say the council is considering a charge of 30 to $44 a month per household. Mr. Chan said the Environmental Bureau should take the policy lead here, but collaboration was necessary. Anything to do with the waste would be under the Environment Bureau, uh, but, but that is just on the policy aspect. But in terms of implementation, I'm sure we require you know, cross-bureau's effort because in the case of uh, waste charging, I'm sure going one from the Food and Wealth Bureau has to be involved because you know, they were the one who uh, will be actually implementing the policy, as well as uh, Secretary Anthony Zhang because a good two million people live in public housing, so it certainly will require uh, the support from you know, the, the Housing Bureau to implement the policy. So I was personally thinking that it will need a cross-bureau's efforts to, uh, to make it happen. But the policy itself will be, obviously, will be, uh, we originate from the Environment Bureau. Bernard Chan. Well, the time just a minute now before news coming up. Uh, morning brew after that. We'll leave you with the European stock numbers. The FTSE 100 down less than a point. The DAX was off 111. That's a drop of 1.2%. And the Cacarant in Paris was uh, at 41.62, down 35 points uh, for the day. Weather today, cloudy with showers, some squally thunderstorms. Uh, still had some rain warnings around. Showers to be heavy at times, maximum temperature 29. The outlook, still thunder showers expected tomorrow, but becoming fine towards the weekend. Again, Morning Brew next. The news at 9 o'clock. Thanks for listening. We'll be back tomorrow. I'm Brian Curtis with Money for Nothing.